I think that there are enough of us at this point that are skilled, that are doing this work, that actually just need to be supported, protected, rewarded. I'm very, very interested in how do we actually make this a field where people are respected and employed at a salary, at a sort of support level that actually allows them to do this kind of work. You know, we're sort of seen as these people that don't even exist. You know, you'd think based on the the conversations that we have about science communication that nobody like me even exists, right? This is such a new field. Nobody's ever done it before, yada, yada, yada. And that's just absolutely not true. Welcome to Beyond the Bench, the podcast where we delve into stories of scientists and their work. I'm your host, Madison Sankovitz. I'm an entomology PhD student at the University of California, Riverside. And today co-hosting with me is Dr. Monique Rivera, who's an extension specialist in the department. Today, we are super excited to welcome Faith Kearns on the podcast. And she's an academic coordinator for the California Institute for Water Resources. Welcome, Faith. Thank you, Madison. Thank you, Monique, for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, yes. We've been excited for this for a long time. It seems like you wear many hats because you do so many different projects with science communication and you have a new book that just came out really recently, which we're definitely going to get into in this interview. But let's start out by talking about what is the California Institute for Water Resources and what do you do there? Sure. So the California Institute for Water Resources is one of a set of national institute for water resources that exist all across the country. So um, there's one in every state and several U.S. territories and Um, We are the California version of that. And so within that, our mission is um, to sort of connect water research uh, throughout the state and particularly with federal agencies, including the U.S. Geological Survey, who um, administers the national program. And so what that looks like in California is that we're located within the cooperative extension system, which Dr. Rivera is also a part of. And um, so that means we do a lot to try to um, make available and relevant the research that's happening at it within the UC system um, and make that available to uh, the sort of tax paying public of California. And so for me, um, on a daily basis, I'm a scientist, a freshwater scientist by training, um, but I'm also a science communicator by practice. And I've actually been a communications practitioner for longer than I've been a scientist. I started out doing communications work um, in the athletics department of my undergraduate university. That was my work study job that I was very, very lucky to fall into. Um, It's much better than my fast food jobs (laughs) in high school. And so I was just super psyched to start working in communications and marketing. And this was in the early 90s before science communication even had that name. And so I was sort of an environmental science major while also working in communications. And people would often ask me, like, what are you doing uh, working in communications when you're a science major? 
And vice versa, people would say, why aren't you working as a lab assistant um, while I was working in the athletics department? But I really loved both. And it was really unclear what I would do with that. It just kind of was what it was. Um, But I was very lucky to sort of fall into a uh, job with the public affairs office at the Ecological Society of America right after undergrad working in what is called their public affairs office, because at that time, that was sort of a way to do what ultimately years later came to be known as science communication. So what I, you know, I really loved your story. And um, in your new book, you really discuss the personal experience and um, like your personal experience, but also then try to translate your personal experience and, and sort of best practices in a way Um, for other science communication practitioners. So what do you think are some things that science communicators can do to build relationships and find empathy and common ground? So just to make sure I'm stating the title of the book, so your recently released book, Getting to the Heart of Science Communication. Um, I just really think that, uh, you know, before letting you answer. Uh, This book is just so unique and I'm just so happy that you released it because I really feel like it's very relatable and it's also, I think, useful for getting everybody on the same page because not everybody is on the same page and not everybody understands sort of the goals of, you know, for example, listening or the goals of really empathizing. And I really loved your discussion of trauma. Um, So, yeah, the question that I was trying to get you to delve into was what are some things that science communicators can do to build relationships and find empathy or common ground with their audience or their clientele? Sure. So um, let me back up just a little bit and say what I was really trying to do, and I appreciate, Monique, that you sort of picked up on this, was that there really hasn't been any sort of grounding or theoretical grounding of what science communication is. And I'm not saying that my definition is really the only one, but, you know, the way that it has been talked about for most of my career is sort of connecting journalists, um, most often, you know, uh, at elite institutions like the New York Times with um, elite scientists, also at elite institutions, (laughs) right? And so the goal was always like, how can I be so-and-so professor at Stanford who gets myself into New York Times? And that was considered to be the epitome of excellent science communication, right? And so I have spent my whole career as a science communicator not understanding that is the major discourse of the field because the way I've practiced science communication has been much more in the spirit of something like the cooperative extension system that really is built on human relationships. And so um, my theory uh, that I try to lay out in the book is that science communication is a relational endeavor and that it isn't this sort of sage on the stage model. Not to say that people won't continue doing that. That's obviously a major thrust of science communication. But I also kind of wanted to start to lay out a history of the field and um, talk a little bit more about what it could be rather than the way that we've been talking about it for the majority of my career with, with the hopes of finding other people who agree and are interested in pushing the bounds of of what science communication has been considered for the past couple of decades. So what do you think about the use of the term science communication? I find that to be relatively new, that there's such an umbrella term and and that the interest that surrounds that specific term, it has become what it is. Um, I was introduced through science communication, really through extension. My first mentor was an excellent science communicator and really showed me how her relationship with growers 
fed her research program and how she, you know, essentially fed them back with the research program. Um, so yeah, I'm just interested in your take on that because, um, just your experience living through this as it was not defined. Um, and now it's become such a, you know, hot term that people want that they're, they've become passionate about. And, and what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. I would say my sense of when we started using the term science communication was probably around 2000. So it's really only a sort of widely used phrase for the past 20 years or so. And, um, you know, I in the book, I, I try to say that there is also a global context for science communication, but because I only want to speak to sort of what I can and what I know, I'm talking about sort of the North American context over the last two decades. And I really struggle with the term science communication. Um, I even struggle with it in terms of it being the title of my book, because I think the things that I'm talking in the book apply much more broadly than people might guess with the term science communication. And yet it's also kind of my field and I feel very strongly about moving it forward. And so it's kind of, you know, being stuck in the middle here with, um, like you're saying, I think I also saw the disconnect with what people were talking about as science communication as someone who also sort of fell into cooperative extension during graduate school, working with Dr. Maggie Kelly at UC Berkeley, um, where I really learned like, oh, this set of skills that I already have actually fits really well into the extension model. But then watching, you know, at the, at the major science communication or, or just science conferences where people would talk about communication, that they were having an entirely different conversation than the one that I could learn from, was interested in any of that. And so it's been a real struggle over the last I started working kind of in this vein to explain this in about 2008. So it's, you know, been a dozen years of just trying to pave the way to even be able to have this conversation because honestly, um, there's been a lot of gatekeeping within the science communication realm. And so it's been very, very hard to even carve out the space to say, hey, what about different ideas of the way we do science communication? So I think um, one thing that's really interesting is Cooperative Extension obviously has this sort of over 100-year history of doing the kind of work that I describe in the book, right? Like this relationship building. At the same time, I would say that the extension system itself also needs some reinvigorating, right? Like we are in these very active discussions about, you know, who we serve within cooperative extension, how we serve our clientele. And so I, I think there's a beneficial potential relationship between talking about science communication and extension in a more integrated way, because there are these lessons to learn from 100 years of doing that relationship building work, doing sort of um, resident, you know, homeowner uh, farmer-driven research. Um, and at the same time, um, I think the cooperative extension system is struggling with things like justice orientations, right? And so um, so I think joining forces in a more clear way could really reinvigorate both of those endeavors. Yeah, I'll just say as a student who read your book, Getting to the Heart of Science Communication, I just, I really appreciate how you really talk about what it's like to be an actual practitioner of this field, because it can sort of be almost like it's assumed that you're a science communicator on the side, if you're doing anything in the science realm, if you're either a student or a professional scientist, communication is just A, what you do on the side, and B, it's sort of assumed that you'll do that work 
without the proper compensation for it. And as a student, and I think you also touch on this in the book, it's almost can be this weird taboo thing that you sort of feel bad for wanting to commit a lot of time to doing it and building those skills. They can almost be looked upon as soft skills in a way. So I would just say that this book was so validating and really refreshing to be able to read about this as an actual profession that not only so many people are committed to for their careers all over the world these days, but also ways that we need to work together to improve this as a career and improve it for the practitioners who are doing the work. And so one of the things that you talk about is the importance of communicators prioritizing their emotional and physical selves because a lot of the work is working with traumatic topics with people who are experiencing very traumatic things in their life, whether that's related to climate change or natural disasters or things like that. And so talking about prioritizing your emotional and physical self and making space and time for reflection and joy, I really like that discussion. So can you sort of talk about why it's important for science communication practitioners to do these things? To frame it from from the beginning, right? The thesis of the book is that um, there are a set of people whose primary work is science communication, um, and it isn't just this thing that we do on the side. Um, for some of us, say in cooperative extension, it's just integral. It's it's a part of the job. You don't think about communication as separate from the research part. It's it's all integrated. Um, and and like you said, Madison, I think people have tended to see. Um, science communication as the domain of sort of tenured faculty, right? Who are just, this is just one of the small jobs they have. But what I have noticed, what what I tried to do with the book was actually just center the people doing the work. And that resulted in an entirely <laughs> different description of a science communication than you might get from, say, a journalist who's saying, here's how you guys can talk better to me, right? Like I, I'm I'm less interested in that than I am in the sort of welfare and the the practice of the actual people doing it. And so in doing that and based on my own experiences working on wildfire and water and climate change in, in the Western US, I've just found myself in these really emotional, contentious and traumatic situations, um, both for myself and other people. Again, within the cooperative extension system, you're embedded in a in a place, right? This isn't a sort of sitting in a lab, looking at climate projections in a place you've never been to and maybe never will go to, right? Like if there's a wildfire in California, I'm pretty likely to be experiencing it in some way, um, either by filtering it literally through my brain and body because I'm a science communicator and I'm having to write about, tweet about, whatever these things, or it's literally happening sort of in my region, right? Um, and sometimes all at the same time. And so it becomes it, it becomes impossible to have this sense that like there, there, this is only happening to other people. It's directly happening to me too. <laughs> and not only that, but I'm, I'm taking on, um, a role of what I, I hesitate to call it, 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 say it this way, but I think it's very true that increasingly some of these science communication roles are a little bit closer to what I would think of as what people call the helping professions, right? So things like social work, psychology, things like that. And if you um, are deeply embedded in this work, there's literally no way to do it, I don't think, without sort of a pretty empathetic, compassionate mindset. Um, 
And so in doing that, you need some of the tools that that some of those folks are trained in, you know, and so that's what I tried to bring into the book was the experiences of practitioners in other fields who actually do have discussions about things like how to um, how to deliver bad news, how to um, manage your own emotions in a very emotional situation, right? So like a psychologist, for example, might be triggered by something that somebody they're working with is saying, and they're trained in how to actually manage manage themselves because they're playing a professional role in that situation. And we just, because we haven't ever talked about things this way, there's just so many tools that we don't have access to. And so that's what this book is a little bit about is my journey of like trying to figure out how people manage in these kinds of roles, because I know they exist. They exist for doctors, they exist for lawyers, they exist for psychologists. And so Um, So I tried to bring in some of those tools, um, both because I think the work suffers if scientists, uh, particularly, I mean, science communicators in particular, don't learn to work with their own emotions, right? And so this is this hard thing where I'm not saying center yourself. This is not a narcissistic endeavor. This is literally like you are dealing with situations where people are already, say, traumatized in a wildfire, Um, understanding how you're feeling about that. And how that affects how you communicate is, um, to me, is just an absolutely necessary professional skill set these days for science communicators. And I see, I see the damage that gets caused <laughs> by folks who aren't thinking about it that way. Um, and that is, in some ways, how I got inspired to start this work was just seeing the ways that say. Um, anger on behalf of some clients, climate science communicators was spilling out into a way that they communicated, right? Where it's just, you can feel their anger literally through a tweet. Um, and maybe that's fine. I'm not saying anger is, um, a, is a, I don't believe in sort of bad emotions, right? It's just that um, I think having a sense that like, yes, I'm going to communicate my anger right now um, intentionally is different than just letting it spill out all over the place. So, um, and and as I, as I talk about in the the initial story in the book um, that really kind of inspired me on this work, it was really kind of interacting with this man who in, in essence told me that like we had re we had re-traumatized him um, giving a presentation about wildfire in this very intellectually distanced way. And so it's not only, you know, the, the, the harm we can cause to ourselves, but literally just the way that it makes us not good at being science communicators. <laughs> so I think it's a worthwhile um, thing to start thinking about. So what was the, what was writing a book like? Um, this is sort of a completely new format, right? Especially I think for extension practitioners, it's a sen- usually it's short, sweet, to the point, trying to make it as simplistic as possible. And um, you tell a lot of stories of other professionals in your book. So were those people that you were already in your network and you knew sort of had this great vision for what they were doing? Or was this like something you sought out research-wise for the book? Um, it was a little bit of both. I mean, I've I've clearly been working in this vein for many years at this point. And so I had already started writing a lot of these stories over 10 years ago. Um, and then I continued in, in my role at, at the Water Institute. I um, One of the first things that happened when I came back to California after spending some time in D.C. again <laughs> was... Um, 
I, I started working in the Water Institute and saw that there were essentially only a few people who were narrating from the academic community were sort of narrating what was happening with water in California. And I happened to come right um, on the edge of this, the, the last big drought, which might be the same as the drought we're having now um, starting. And so um, it was very, very striking to me that anytime I read a story about drought, um, it, it quoted the same like three people repeatedly. And it was giving to me a very limited story and a very different one than what I was seeing. And so I, what I really set out to do in the Water Institute was start profiling um, the many folks who are working in different fields. So anthropology, sociology, um, from all different corners of California um, and in all sorts of roles that weren't engineering and weren't um, just, you know, ecology or whatever, but to really try to spell out a fuller picture of what was happening with water in California. And so you'll see, if you look at the footnotes in the book that, that many of those interviews ended up in the book and that, that those I've been working on for at least eight, eight years at this point. Um, and there are pieces of things that I had written separately as well, that are sort of more essay form um, that I've written over the last 10, 12 years that are also there. So that's one piece of it. And I would say that makes up probably about 50% of the narratives in the book, although I have not counted. Um, and then, you know, a good another probably 30% at least are from people in my network. And so just people that I've built up relationships with over time who maybe we've had these conversations on the side at various conferences when we're basically like literally none of the sessions at this conference are relevant to me or my life. So let's sit in the lobby and talk to the three other people who do the same kind of work I do and lament the fact that we have no way to talk about the work that we're actually doing. Um, and so that, that was a good other percentage. And then um, I would say that the last sort of 20% were people that I found along the way who somebody, you know, recommended because I was also trying to think a lot about geography and field and topic. And, you know, cause I wanted as many people as possible to see themselves reflected in the book, to see pieces of their experience in the book. So, you know, I was trying to be a, in a meta way as relational as possible in talking about relation, <laughs> relational work and the value of it, if that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. As someone who's trying to be a science communication practitioner for my career, it was super cool to hear everyone's different stories and hear about all these different people who I could sort of look into on the side and expand my network of, oh, maybe I want to actually reach out to this person or this person's not really what I want to go into, but they're a super cool uh, role model for me, honestly. And speaking of role models, I'm interested in everyone's role models because I think mentoring and just who we have as examples really shapes us in our careers and who we become. So this is sort of a two-part question for you, but do you have anyone in particular who is a huge role model for you as a science communication practitioner? And then also, have you had anyone as a role model and or mentor who's really sort of inspired you to go about your career in the way that you have? Does that make sense? Those two? Yeah, parts? totally. So I'll start with the second question first. So I have been very, very, very lucky to have amazing 
mentorship um, in all stages of my career. So working for the athletics department um, at Northern Arizona University, where I went to undergrad, um, I had two uh, really great bosses there, um, Valerie Rogers and Kelly Woodward, who who both just let me do what I did. And I also had an amazing um, graduate student assistant. Actually, she was an undergrad at the time, Andrea Brunel, who's now faculty at, at the University of Utah, a paleoecologist. And all of them just sort of, you know, I grew up in a very working class family and, you know, didn't, nobody was necessarily pushing me to go to college. Um, I didn't even know that I would end up in college really. Um, and so just finding myself, I even had a high school teacher who kind of hooked me up with, she had played basketball, um, at my university and she hooked me up with the administrative assistant who ultimately gave me my job, you know? So there's all these like very lucky pieces of teachers who have paved the way. Um, even a high school teacher, I had Leslie Brown, who really was the first person who said to me, like, um, you know, you do really well without even trying what would happen if you tried. And nobody had ever said something like that to me before. And I just thought, I don't know. That's a good question. And so I went into college trying, you know, um, and then I was very lucky at the Ecological Society to work with Nadine Lynn, who's in the book, and then also um, Mary Barber, who's in the acknowledgments, who really, for me, set out this way of being a scientist in the world that was kind, um, generous, but also like really strong when need be. Um, my, my boss, Mary Barber was, a you know, a very early marine ecologist, female role model, but, um, was one of these people who could, she was incredibly diplomatic, but could also say what needed to be said, which is definitely something I think I've modeled myself on subconsciously for a very long time. Um, and, and working with Dr. Maggie Kelly at UC Berkeley, who's, she's a, an amazing cooperative extension specialist. And so I would say with all of these folks, the things that they let me do, um, is be myself. Like they just kind of let me, they didn't, uh, manage overly micromanage me. It was just sort of like, yeah, you're good at that. Go do it. And so I was able to really do a lot of that. And then I would say later in my career, I, you know, one of the people that I, I think about a lot and turn to a lot is in the book, Dr. Theopia Jackson, who's a clinical psychologist and a faculty member at Saybrook university who, um, is, uh, you know, starting to work on climate change. She's kind of coming at it from this very different perspective. And I saw her give her first talk on climate change probably about five years ago. And she was very humble in the offering saying like, I just don't know anything about climate change. Um, but here I am as a psychologist and as a black woman who has this other set of experiences. And the talk she gave was one of the most edifying things I have ever seen anybody <laughs> say about climate change, you know, and, and I've seen many people say things about climate change. So that was, you know, that's really saying something. And I continue to um, try as much as I can to model the work that I'm doing uh, after the way that I, you know, I sort of do this, what would Dr. Jackson do <laughs> in this scenario in my head constantly? Yeah, I relate to that so much. Like there's, there's definitely, you know, this thing where when I think back, like there's a chance that I could have not gone to college mm -hmm. and that would drastically change my path. So that influences me a lot thinking of who you come in contact with and how they got there and their stories. And I feel like that's really re well represented in the book as well. Um, so 
there's a lot of things that undermine sort of the reality of actually being a science communicator and a scientist. In extension, we kind of benefit from like, oh, well, it's part of my job description, so I get to communicate. But for most scientists that are that are working, you know, they might teach, and I do believe that's another form of extension. Um, but at the same time, there's many things that get in the way. You know, for example, the way we evaluate people doesn't really um, support that sort of work. Um, but what do you think about how we need to, you know, what's your vision for the future to drive the field so that it is actually honored and respected? Yeah, so I'll say this is my vision, right? Like I think there are there are many and and all are equally sort of valid. I um, am very strong in the book in saying that I'm very much less interested in the conversations around incentivizing science communication for sort of faculty members who aren't that interested in it anyway, right? Um, I think that there are enough of us at this point that are skilled, that are doing this work, that actually just need to be supported, protected, rewarded. And so I have no doubt that that conversation about incentivizing science communication for faculty will continue whether I participate in it or not. So I sort of don't participate in it all that much because it's um it's not my fight to fight for one thing and also i i really do strongly believe that we're seeing this segmentation where i i think science communication practice is enough of a valid field on its own that this kind of idea of like helping people to do it with 10% of their time on the side is just it's not where my mindset is at i'm very very interested in how do we actually make this a field where people are respected and employed at a rate that um at a salary, at a sort of support level that actually allows them to do this kind of work. Because the way it's unfolding right now is there's more and more professional opportunities for science communicators, but they tend to be like, we're looking for somebody with two years, you know, of experience who don't even need a college degree. And to me, that says very, very loudly what people think a science communication skill set is. And that's not to say that young people, early career folks don't have anything to offer, but I think that, um, particularly as someone now firmly in my mid-career and my mid-40s, um, the professional opportunities moving forward are baffling, you know, in that there kind of aren't any <laughs> because, you know, we're sort of seen as like these people that don't even exist. You know, you'd think based on the, the conversations that we have about science communication that nobody like me even exists, right? This is such a new field. Nobody's ever done it before, yada, yada, yada. And that's just absolutely not true. And so I start to wonder like, who is benefiting from these conversations about this field being new and there not being anybody skilled that does it? It's in, it's, it's wild. It's wild. So um, I can get kind of passionate about this particular topic, but I think, you know, that's why I tried to write the book in the, in this way that was like, there are tons of people doing this work in a very deep way. So for example, you'll see science communicators finally starting to grapple with the idea of listening, right? But it's 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 at this very colloquial level as if we're just going to be like, "Ah, oh, um, you know, and there's no there's no downside to listening. There's no ethical quandary involved in it. There's no um concern about extraction, we're just going to do it and it's going to be fine, right? And so what I'm trying to get at is like this is a profession in and of itself. Um, that, you know, when we talk about things like uh, broader impacts in NSF grants, et cetera, et cetera, that there should just be actually people who this is their specialty. And, and it should be rewarded that way. It should be a serious job. I, I guess in the sense I've been very lucky in that I've been able to create these sort of 
serious jobs where I'm compensated well enough. But I um, got involved in a Twitter conversation the other day that I didn't, of course, totally understand the context in which I was operating. But you know, people were talking about whether a particular salary for a science communication job was enough or too much or what. And it was just very interesting to see that a lot of the early career folks had no idea what an adequate salary is for a science communication position, you know? And I just wanted to like sit everybody down and be like, let's talk about how much money we make because, you know, and everybody's loath to do that. But at the same time, like, I just don't, I think science communicators are falling a little bit into the adjunctification of the university. Um, they're falling into these sort of, there, there's early career opportunities at NGOs and things like that. But as you advance in your career, um, there's just very little discussion about how to keep moving the field forward. And so um, I hope that answers your question a little bit. I, I mean, I think there will be endless discussions about <laughs> incentivizing and how to reward faculty for science communication, because that's the biggest part of it. But what I'm trying to carve out is it's is sort of a separate conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that makes uh, total sense. I think, um, you know, sometimes this work, uh, you know, you can kind of build a name for yourself. So I feel that there's like a tension between the individual having their brand and the work that they're doing. And so essentially uh, what I would see, at least from my perspective, is if you can build your brand, the issue is, is that that brand is usually connected to your topic. So there's no way to say, hey, this is me. I do this. This is my skill set and jump between topics, which would allow for a lot more flexibility and for you to end up sort of where you're needed. Um, and I feel that kind of to some degree in what I do too, you know, I think I'm really well known for citrus now. And it's like, well, I've worked on a lot of other crops, you know, like it's not, this is not, you know, driven by citrus. So I think, you know, for me, I, I think it's all about branding and, and letting people know that, you know, this can be dynamic and it doesn't have to be, you know, pushed into a corner, um, you know, and do you feel that way essentially with climate change and, and water? Because that's, those are two things that, you know, okay, climate change, I feel like we're probably experiencing the effects of that more in California, but water, I didn't even realize the context of water until I moved to the West Coast. The East Coast is a rainforest. Like, this has completely changed the way I think about agriculture. So yeah, just can you comment a little bit on that? Like, do you, you know, do you yourself feel pigeonholed and, and what do you think we should do to, to, to make a, you know, the brand seem more dynamic, like don't attach me to my topic only. Yeah. So that's a super interesting question. And one that I hope to, it's very sticky. And so I, I do hope to kind of write a little bit into this topic in the future. But um, so one of the things that I am trying to argue for in the book is sort of a, a more collective model. Um, and so even backing up from the question of whether I feel pigeonholed, I very much am questioning this idea that um, science communication has picked up on the influencer culture. Um, and even before that, the way we talked about science communication led itself right into that, right? Like, because we were already doing this individual star model of science communication. And that's very much what that model of like, let's get journalist X in front of the New York Times or whatever is. It's it's kind of elevating one person's work. Um, and that will always come at the expense 
of both what the person's full nature is and the collective nature of science in general. Like there, there's just no way that one um, paper in nature is the result of one person's genius. It doesn't happen that way. And yet that is very much the way that we have trained people in science communication um, and, and, and in science, right? So these are, it's very hard to talk about science communication as separate from the scientific endeavor. You kind of can't in a lot of ways, but I'm also try I try to sort of stay in my lane on the science communication piece. So I think even that model in and of itself is, has lent itself to this idea that, um, that you have to have a brand. And in terms of being pigeonholed, I would say, I have actually probably harmed myself in a lot of ways by refusing it. And so, you know, for example, I've been a, a, a science communicator for a very long time. I've been contributing the field for a very long time. And yet, like, I don't have a huge Twitter following. I don't have a huge, you know, it's it, some of the things that, that make people these sort of huge um, sort of influencers within science communication have... Um, have approached that in a much sort of, I guess, if much more effective way than I have. Um, and that's sort of on purpose and sort of also like, I just can't, I don't, um, it, it's just not in my nature. I'm not a performer. I'm not a, you know, a, a, a person who believes that branding is the way forward, because I think that's also how we get into these things where people are sort of like, that's my one idea and nobody else can have it or talk about it. And um, it's just super harmful, I think, to the, to the entire endeavor. And so the way that I'm starting to think about what that looks like moving forward is what, what does a science communication collective look like? You know, I've, I've thought a little bit about something like the model of say the cheese board here in Berkeley, which is a, um, a baking and cheese selling collective, right. Where it's a, a worker owned co-op and, um, and that kind of model is very appealing to me. So how, how you would get funding for it, how you, you know, all of that is very complicated. And that's where I'm trying to say this is actual work that requires actual skills so that we can start to carve off actual support <laughs> for it at a high level, you know, because the way that we're doing it right now, I actually think we're coming up against a crisis in the field. So science communication will always have to exist because science exists, right? And so we're always going to be communicating it. The question is how, and so, um, and what that feels like to the people doing the work and whether they're compensated properly and all of that kind of stuff. So I'm really looking at it um, outside of even my own, the challenges is for my own self, but what does this field look like moving forward and how can we move outside of this individual influencer culture, which again, as somebody in my mid-career, I will say um, that, your ability to influence is time limited. And so um, it's not a sustainable career model. It just isn't, you know, uh, it just isn't. <laughs> and so I think for people thinking about the long game of a career in science communication, it, it, it cannot be reliant on this sort of self-branded influencer model. Yeah, I wonder if, um, you know, with your idea of the collective, if maybe that isn't something that's just more training based, because one of the things I've realized is that, you know, all the skills can be taught, but they're not being taught anywhere. It either comes to you naturally because you've been put through situations where you've just had to learn it. I just feel like, you know, sometimes even just simple extension talks, like how you talk about data, how you relate to a problem that a grower is having. I just feel like all of that is training based 
And in, well, in particular in the UC system, this is just a small rant, the extension specialists are, you know, kind of annexed from teaching. And I feel like the best model is to have this being taught actively to students Mm -hmm. so that they understand that, you know, this isn't something, just some innate ability, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you learn this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that really puts us to our last question here. So what do you, what's your best advice for students who are looking to have a career in science communication and what do you think they should be focusing their efforts on while working towards the degree? Yeah. So again, this is a complicated question for me. Um, I, again, am, you know, in my mid career and I graduated with my doctorate in 2003. And so I feel like I am out of the advice business in a, in a lot of ways because I, I'm not navigating the job market that early career folks are navigating. And so I think I want to be very clear that my sort of quote unquote advice is, is limited. Um, and because I graduated into a very different job market. Um, and, and at the same time, <laughs> I will say that what I am advocating for, and I don't know what this would look like at every, in every place, but the sort of one-off training where people get a day or a half a day of science communication training um, is should be recognized for what it is, which is a very small, you know, view into what this world is. And I think what we actually need to be doing is revisiting the training system for scientists who want to become science communicators. And so when you look at, which is what I derive a lot from in the book, is that increasingly science communicators are practitioners, right? They are not researchers. And so when you look at fields like law or medicine, um, you you might become a medical researcher, but then you're not going to become a family doctor, which is a practitioner, right? Um, And same with lawyers, like you can become a legal researcher, but that's different from being a legal practitioner. And so I think what we need to start moving in the direction of is training for practitioners by practitioners. And so that is just, um, that's going to be a super challenge because the way that, you know, law school and medical school are set up, you sort of have these abilities to do clinical training. um, And it's very much built into how the medical system works, for example, to have student doctors with working within hospitals and how we would actually set up the sort of financial piece of, of doing this for folks in say the natural sciences, where there's already so little resources to begin with is super confusing. And yet I just don't see another way other than to have people who want to be practitioners taught by practitioners doing practice-based work. Like that's, that just is what it is. If you're going to become a practitioner, you should be trained to become a practitioner. And Yana Limbrinadu, who's in my book, who's an anthropologist, who's worked a lot with sort of the ethical quandaries of scientists and engineers and how they do this kind of work, you know, is very much like we should, it's, you can't imagine sending a doctor who's never done surgery in to do a surgery. And we should view this kind of community engaged work by scientists in the exact same way, because the chances of harm are just too big. And that's, you know, even beyond learning the skills to me, that's where the real challenge is, is you can learn a set of skills, but the sort of self reflexivity, the ability to reflect on the ethics of the field, the ability to reflect on whether we're doing this work well, that requires a field of practice, a community of practice of people who can actually talk about these things. Um, And as you can see from the discourse in the field, if you don't have people who actually do this work every day, doing the the also the teaching, the training, (laughs) um, it just misses the mark. 
And so how we get there, I'm not entirely sure, but that's that's what I believe. And so I would say for, for early career folks that doing, um, and I tried to provide a couple models of this in the second chapter, but getting as much actual practical experience as you can um, with practitioners is is the thing to do, even though I know it's really challenging. Absolutely. I mean, the stuff you're describing is the stuff of my dreams. I mean, absolutely. If there was a way that I could get more formal training by a real practitioner, I mean, sign me up tomorrow. I would be doing that. Um, So I think you really sort of hit the nail on the head with that. But that being said, I just hear more and more discussion along these lines amongst the people that I'm connected with who are already science communication practitioners and who are young enough that they're still in their early career. And so I do feel a momentum and that gives me hope. Like you said, it's going to be a really difficult challenge with funding and figuring out how this can be a sustainable model for the future. But I think your book that you wrote is absolutely a wonderful step in the right direction. I mean, I just see discussion about it all over the place in our circles, at least. So yeah, it's really wonderful. Thank you for writing that. It absolutely is super helpful for students like me, but I also know practitioners and other science professionals have been reading it and gotten a lot out of it too. So yeah, thank you so much, Faith. And this has been a really great discussion. So thanks for spending your time with us today. Thank you both for having me and for your engagement with the book, for reading it. Like I have to say, just given everything that's going on in the world, I am just so honored that people have the, the, that they spend, choose to spend their time actually reading and engaging with this material. So I really appreciate it. And I appreciate being a guest on your show today. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Bench, a production from SciComm at UCR. This podcast is supported by Science for Citrus Health and the UC Riverside Graduate Student Association. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SciComUCR.